This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And right now, their holiday menu and reservations are open, featuring an expanded menu of fully cooked items. They have boneless ribeye roast prepared sous vide style, roasted tri-tip cedar plank salmon, fully cooked North Atlantic lobster, which brings me back, a full menu of side dishes, and a lot of prepared home meats, desserts, and more. So the online ordering is available through December 22nd for all I just mentioned. Also, if you've got somebody that's a uh, cook or wannabe cook on your holiday list, Zupan's now carrying Finex cast iron cookware that is handcrafted right here in Portland. I have seen this. These things are amazing. They're gorgeous. Right. And look, the handles are great. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't have to reach for a pot holder. Here. I want one and I don't do that much cooking in the house, but I'm just yeah. like, I would look so good in my kitchen. And who isn't a roast lover, by the mm. way? I like the prime rib for uh, I'm not raising my hand. Holiday. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So they have uh, two grades, black and silver, a Snake River Farms American Kobe beef style Wagyu beef for the holidays. And uh, you can order that in store or by phone. They have a limited supply of Harris Ranch dry aged choice standing rib roasts also. Those are delicious and a little bit different than turkey and ham. Very nice. And also remember, New Year's just around the corner. Portland's best selection of sparkling wine and champagne, plus large format bottles that are perfect for your New Year's Eve parties. It's Zupan's Markets. It's the place you want to go. Yeah. And hey, by the way, on the, during the holidays, you're all going to be saying cheese, right? Oh, oh, yeah, of course. So while you're taking the pictures, you also want to order your custom cheese plate from them. And uh, they're made to order by their expert cheesemongers. They've got those three locations, McAdam, Lake Grove, and of course Burnside, and always online at zoopans.com. It is time once again for Portland's Food Scene Podcast with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. And you're Court Johnson, and we are professional podcasters. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, I always say I'm a professional only because I get paid. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and we're, you know, we can, we, we're working on making this for four years. Yeah. So yep. this is our final, we got a two-part uh, series to end 2018, and we've kind of started doing that as a little tradition, but this year we changed it up, and by changing it up, we have four different guests Mm -hmm. over two weeks, two Wednesdays in a row. Right. This one will feature uh, Oregon Live and the Oregonian's Michael Russell, critic in charge, and uh, also our own Gary Okazaki calling in. Gary the foodie. So um, we thought what we'd do on part one was look back on 2017, talk about some of the surprises and things that happened that uh, we think were noticeable and impacted and would probably have an impact on 2018. And next week, we will talk to Maddie John Bamman and Kurt Huffman of Chef's Table. Yeah. Um, and actually, Maddie, uh, if you're just listening to this today, Wednesday, the day this releases, it was announced yesterday that uh, Maddie is leaving Eater Portland and uh, to do his own thing. So we have the privilege of having kind of a last hurrah with Maddie. Yeah, it'll be nice. So again, as you pointed out, kind of a look back and a look forward in pretty much both of these podcasts that they're going to hear today and next week. Well, next week is more of a look forward. forward. We talk a little bit more business yeah. and what's going on yeah. and what, what what to look forward to in 2018. Speaking of which, in 2018, uh, quickly here... People can travel with you, right? Yes. Just go to portlandfoodadventures.com. Check out 
our trips to Sicily, to Barcelona, and Mexico City, man, for for about 70% of the cost of those other two trips. Come to Mexico City and do some mezcal and chocolate with David Briggs of Chocolato de David and uh, some cool stuff. Plus... Some uh, Renata, the farewell to Matt Sigler. Oh, yeah. At, uh, on January 4th at, at Renata, we have a Portland Food Adventures event, which includes gift certificates to some cool places. Uh, take a look at that. And uh, one of them would be Figlia and another one to Stack Sandwiches. And uh, take a look at that. And then also we are at Stacked with Eater Chef of the Year, Gabriel Pascuzzi, on February 1st. So that's enough of that business and let's get into some uh, some Portland food monkey business here with Gary and Michael Russell. It's a privilege to have those guys here. And, and Court, thanks for four years of doing this, man. Thank you. I can't believe it's been four years. Pretty crazy. I do, th- I do stupid things like what percentage of my life have I been doing this? Right. And I really don't feel like going into it. It's not... I wish it was 10%. Well, for me, it is 10%. Because, Good for you. Because I, I turned 40 this year, so... Good. Well, I got a milestone next year, which I don't really feel like talking about, but I'm going to Ireland to celebrate. There we go. So if anybody has any good Ireland suggestions, Cork and, uh, not Court, Cork, Dublin, let me know. But I got a few from uh, the folks at Raven and Rose, so thanks. Anyway, here's uh, Michael Russell and uh, Gary the Foodie and Court and me. No, it's been a, not not too long since you released your top forty. Love it list. Yeah, how's that? How is the? Uh, how, what's been the reaction to your top forty list? Strong, strong. I mean, good I'm feedback. A lot, lot of clicks, baby. Million. Is it, so it's all about the clicks. <laughs> it's all about the clicks. So doesn't that mean that you need to you need to inject something perhaps controversial that you may not believe should be in the top forty, but just to get some clicks? Well, uh, switching out Lepigeon for cocaine at number one was probably the most controversial thing. But that was, you know, people pretty much were on board with me. I mean, I think yeah, I can't it's a stylistic thing, I think, because I still really love Lepigeon, maybe even more than, than you guys. I don't know where you stand on it, because um, I think the highs are probably higher, and it's, it's more of a unique-to-Portland restaurant. Um, but Coquine was just so consistent, and we had such a great meal there. Um, just pushed them over the top. We just had we just recorded last week. Um, by the time this comes out, yeah, it still was. When, last he, week. when he means that we is he recorded with Katie and Sundak. Right, Katie right, and Sundak. Right, right, right. Uh, last. Yeah, I saw. I think so I saw that, a photo on Instagram. Yeah, so it'll come out um, in January, and I really enjoyed that. I know mean, Court did too. Both of us, they were fascinating and focused. Just the way she is in the kitchen and he is in the front of the house. <laughs> they had never done a podcast or been in front of mics before like this. I think she's been on TV doing those sorts of things. Yeah. But uh, it also didn't hurt that they brought the cocaine cookie with them. Yes. Each of us. Have you, have you had that cookie? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, that was good. I was planning on <laughs> that, the on, idea dude. behind that cookie was it was going to last a couple of days because it's pretty thick. But it didn't last. It just uh, more went. like a couple minutes. Yeah. A couple days. Well, I was going to try to have half one day, and I'm trying to limit my sugar intake. I knew so. after the first bite, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm done. There's no there's no stopping. So you, none of your family got any of that cookie? Oh. Hell no. I didn't even tell them about Thank it. Thank God none of them listen to this podcast. Nope. <laughs> none, of them, none of them do. <laughs> Brutal. My, ni- my nine-year-old podcast, it's just not her thing. Right. Well, what about Randy? Does she listen to this? Um, 
she likes uh, comedy podcasts. So I th- maybe if we worked in a little, <clears throat> little more. You got any uh, material? Yeah, Michael, you got Michael? a routine for us? Gary, you got any jokes? Sorry. No. Okay. SOL. Yeah, I just flew in from Philadelphia, and boy, are my arms tired. Hey, You're going to Philadelphia, there it is. aren't you? I just, you got just, back. just got back. Oh, you just got back. Yeah, last night. Oh, wow. Full of cheesesteak. Did you go to, did you do Pat's and no, Gino's? No, I did Pat's and I did Gino's and then I went back to Pat's and did a third sandwich because I thought Pat's was better. I didn't want to end on a low note. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, you know, someone in my Instagram goes, uh, oh, they both suck. And he's, I think he's right. It's kind of a trash sandwich, but it, uh, yeah, I, I had did, to do it once. I think, I, yeah, they're, they're okay though. But, you know, the problem is we've been in Portland too long. Gary may argue this, but... We've been in Portland so long, we get kind of spoiled. So those sandwiches necessarily aren't. I think there's probably like ten cheesesteaks in Portland that are better than Gino's, for example. They put more more thought into it. Now the people (laughs) doing are going through the motions. Last time I was in Philly, we went to uh, the new ballpark, which at the time was Citizens Bank. I don't know if it still is, Um, but there was a a rain delay, and so I said to the kids, "Ah, let's get out of here." So we went to Pat's and Gino's. We did both of them. And then the rain delay was ending. We went back to the park and finished the game. Killer. So we did all of that in one day. Anyway, I don't want to use up time on my experiences 15 years ago. I did make it to Zahav, which I've never been to, which is the restaurant that, you know, uh, Sam Smith from Tusk worked at Zahav. Uh, Wesley at Tusk also worked there. So there's a... Uh, there's a Gary can speak to this too. There's a, there's a lot of, it's probably the most influential Israeli restaurant in America. Um, and it, you know, directly influence restaurants here in Portland. So that was that was pretty fun to go try, and it it really impressed me. Um, it lived up to the hype. Was that a specific food trip to go to Philadelphia? No, we were there for my, we were there for my uh, wife's cousin's uh, wedding, and uh, I said like, anytime the uh, it's a Catholic wedding, anytime the homily is like fifteen minutes on Jesus turning water into wine, you know, you're probably gonna get pretty drunk at the wedding. Mm-hmm. So my friend Open Bar was there, and uh, we had a good time with him. Okay. That was a joke, but uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that didn't work, Randy. Randy, you can tune out now. I'll stop now. Yeah. I'll stop trying now. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So we're listening. We're recapping 2017, which I guess we mentioned your top 40 list. So we've already discussed that on a previous podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what number that was, but it's probably a number in one number 140 or so, somewhere in that 420. I think yeah. 420. Another mm-hmm. joke. I st- I gotta stop, man. <laughs> you, are you good. are you high by any no, chance no, today? Of course not. I'm a dad. Oh I'm well. A, oh okay. I'm I'm like residual two day second day hungover from the wedding. Oh, uh, okay. It was pretty rough. Well, thanks for coming in and agreeing to do this. We originally planned this for the week before. That's right. But Gary couldn't make it. Cl- so classic Gary. Yeah. So yep. <laughs> doing it the way. You know, that's an interesting place to start. We could start anywhere. And this is going to be an hour long discussion on 2017. But you know, we're we're in Portland, Oregon in 2017 and we have guys like Leather Stores doing cannabis dinners now. And I remember when he first did his first pop up, which was I can't remember what it was called, something Anyway, it was very low-key, very under the radar. Don't tell anybody about it because the OLCC isn't, they haven't decided how they're going to handle this. And now I think he's coming a little more out in the forefront. Is cannabis ever going to be treated like wine in the food scene, do you think? Is there going to be a day where, when it's, it's been legal for a long time where people think of it in that regard? I, I, it's really interesting. I mean, we don't really eat a lot of things to get intoxicated. We drink alcohol. That's the most common thing. And, you know, I mean, the things you eat to go into an altered state 
uh, it's obviously has this a much sort of like a more illicit feeling like if you're eating psilocybin mushrooms or something along those lines. I don't know that it would take, I feel like it would take a lot to go into the mainstream. You know, it's like, uh, uh, I think that the place where we're going to see the sort of Portland craft, uh, ethos enter the cannabis realm is with desserts, candies, cookies, things edibles. that are all edibles. Exactly. Things that are already being sold over the counter, uh, I'm not sure where that stands in Oregon. I think you can sell edibles now recreationally. There, there's yeah. a, there was a grace period where you couldn't. But, you know, um, I know Keir Jensen from the Sugar Cube. There was some discussion of her maybe jumping into that field. Yeah, I could totally imagine someone creative and really good with flavors. Uh, you know, because the edibles that exist right now are pretty cheesy. You see a lot of, like, kind of crappy gummies. And, you know, they're all, like, they look like, you know, Mountain Dew flavors that didn't make it to the uh, uh, to the actual store. They were forgotten. Uh, I, I think that's changing, though. I recently was um, having dinner with a friend of mine in the industry, pretty prominent gentleman that I will rename, remain nameless in this conversation. La-di-da. But I stopped and got some cheese crackers, some CBD cheese crackers, and we both commented about how, how delicious they were, <laughs> and we probably would have... Like them had they not had that special, that, you know, that twist to it. Um, but the problem with edibles is that, you know, eating for you, drinking were keyed some of us to say, hey, I got to stop. Whereas with edibles, you can like something and get just completely out of it for a yeah. while. And I think that's, but I know it. At, I went to Leather's first dinner, Kitchen Chronicles, it was called, and they had a, there was a vape pen that you got the flavor after you'd had some salmon. So it wasn't only in the food. It was um, it was that experience of the taste like you would with wine, pairing it. And I was just curious because, um, you know, wine has so much focus. And I've always thought at some point marijuana will be out of the Cheech and Chong realm and into the more of the connoisseur realm and we'll treat it a little differently. It's hard for us old farts because we re we're always going to remember when it was illegal. You know, it'll always be, you know, post becoming legal for us. But the, there's going to be people coming up who are younger than us who grew up or when they turned 18, it became legal for them. It's a totally different world for them. Yeah, I know. But I appreciate that it's legal and that it's a whole different world now. And I've tried to treat it on, on this podcast differently, not as, oh, wow, we're talking about this, but... Our, our podcast with Chris Onstad, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to listen to that, but I strongly suggest it, going from Portland Syrup and what he wants to do with that in this realm. It's very interesting. Gary, how high are you right now? Uh, <laughs> not at all. Um, the thing about <laughs> wine is it tends to enhance, it can enhance the culinary experience. Whereas I, don't, I don't know if pot really enhances the culinary experience other than getting high. I don't know if getting high really makes you taste food if, if the food if the food tastes better because of it i don't I, know i think it could i mean i think it, it depends on the strain but it could focus your attention and uh make it so you're just a little more present in the moment yeah. um and I maybe think in time that'll happen especially in a city and like it'll portland fix, and it'll fix your glaucoma you know if you're worried At the same about that time, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i find the whole thing fascinating and um but that's not what we're here to discuss do you have some of your, you know, if people can read your top 40 at the at the Oregonian and OregonLive.com? Yeah, actually, I have a lot that. of big stuff coming out uh, on Friday, which, when's this podcast coming out? This will come out on... Uh, 27th? Yeah. It's, no, no, it's coming out this Wednesday, uh, oh. two days from now. Oh, perfect. Okay, so uh, if you which look in the... Which would be the, the uh, what is today, the 18th to 20th? 
If you look in the Friday Oregonian, you'll see uh, I did a bit, pretty big end of year package. So we're looking at uh, 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 my 10 best dishes of 2017, which is actually online right now. Uh, and then later in the week online and also on Friday in, in the print in the Oregonian print paper, uh, you'll have my restaurant of the year and rising star for 2017. So I'm pretty excited about that. We, will that be released on the web prior to fe- Friday? It will, Gary, yes. Okay. So you can't release it on the podcast right now? <laughs> we'll keep that <laughs> secret. But by the time you're listening to it, uh, it mm, yeah, it probably should be online. So if you're listening to this right now, go on uh, OregonLive.com. It's our affiliated website, and uh, you'll see the story. Wow. Check all the clicks that are happening oh, right this clicks, very baby. minute. Do you want to talk about, because like you said, you just released your top 10 dishes of the year. And I actually, when I saw that, I thought, oh, maybe I'll figure out what some of my top 10 dishes in Portland were. So yeah. I, looked at, I looked at yours. I mean, you didn't rank them. No. Um, do, do you have a dish of the year? Are you willing to go out on the limb and say which of those 10 could be your dish of the year? That's a great question. I, I felt like the one thing I did do is I named a dessert of the year, um, which was, Chilino. yeah, the the thing I ate the most. It was the uh, roast pineapple ice cream at Chilino, which comes with a mezcal dulce de leche and uh, pepitas and cilantro. Uh, that was the, it's kind of weird to be naming that in winter, but uh, that's the dessert I kept going back for again and again and again. I think it's nice that you remember something months ago. You have, as in your profession, you have to be good at that. Gary and I discuss this all the time, how my food memory just, after a few months, it kind of wafts away. Uh, it's hard for me to remember a dish or what I had at a restaurant. Do you have that? Do you, you're taking notes also. I take notes and I take pictures, so it's probably the same as you guys, just kind of refresh my memory when I need to. Um, the, the interesting thing this year, and, uh, you know, Gary, your list is going to look a lot different than mine, but I, I looked at a lot of for, sort of comfort food dishes and sort of... The introduction to the story I mentioned, I think we're all kind of leaning into comfort food right now. I think anytime you turn on the news, it's something terrible, whether it's, you know, the latest idiotic thing that Trump did or, you know, the new tax bill stripping us of the individual mandate, which is basically going to kill Obamacare or, uh, you know, this Amtrak derailment. It seems like whether it's a natural disaster or, or some kind of political nightmare, every time we turn on the news, it's something terrible. So. This list this year, and, and actually last year's too, was pretty heavy with comfort food. There's a burger on there. Um, it's the uh, uh, the burger from uh, Bless Your Heart, uh, John Gorham's uh, awesome, ready to be turned into a fast food franchise restaurant in Pine Street Market. Uh, there were uh, a couple of other sandwiches too. I had some dumplings from XLB in North Portland. Uh, so it's just all things that kind of, you know, made me feel good this year. And Maddie... Called, named uh, it was comfort sandwiches at Stack Sandwich. He named his chef of the year an eater. Oh, uh, Gabriel Pascuzzi. So that was some comfort. Congratulations, and, and, him. and on my list, I do have some comfort food. For example, the Bonmi Burger from Aviary. Oh yeah. And Justin Woodward did this twelve dish salmon dinner. I ended up buying a king salmon for one hundred thirty bucks, and he cooked the salmon. And one of the things he made that night was a salmon BLT with fries. Mm. That was that's on my top ten. Also, the Imperial from the Crown. The Imperial has fried chicken. It's a pizza from the Crown. Fried chicken, pickles, ranch, honey, hot sauce. Once again, very much comfort food. Um, the Hokkaido miso ramen from the ramen shop pop up at Han Oak. Very much a comfort food. In fact, it was so good. I went to Oakland and went to the ramen shop in October. My dish of the year also very much a comfort food. Not surprisingly, from Picho. It was the first night of his Mantenko spaghetti. It was, it was, so good. it was, 
Yeah, he he hadn't he wasn't serving it to the public that night, but he brought he brought it out. I had it on a TV tray, eating <laughs> it on a lawn chair. I was sitting on a lawn chair outside in the backyard, and had a copious amount of spicy cured pollock roe, and a significant amount of kiwi mayo. It's never been as good as that first night. I always tell him that. But that is my dish, Portland dish of the year, is that Manteco spaghetti, the first night of the Manteco spaghetti at Han Oak. I love that dish. I had it pretty early on, too, when it was similar to that. And I actually had it just a, a couple weeks ago. I went on a Monday and did the uh, chef's tasting menu. And it's still really good. I mean, it, I think the extra row was added a little something, but it's still an awesome, awesome dish. You know, one of the things when I do this list, and I, I don't, really expressly say this and, and it might be confusing to people, but I, I try to pick dishes from newer restaurants. Um, it's sort of like a secondary best new restaurants list. I did one of those earlier in the year, but I, I feel like it, it's a chance to highlight places that, um, you know, maybe haven't gotten a ton of press and are, are sort of new on the scene. Uh, and and it's an, I think it's an excuse for people to go out and like do a little dish crawl around the city. You know, maybe you hit three or four at a time and, uh, you know, you can sort of make a little jog out of it. Um, and, and that's fun, but man, I think if I extended it back a little bit, that, that mentaiko spaghetti would be pretty, pretty high. I mean, all the noodle dishes, the kalguksu, the knife cut noodles at, at Han Oak, plus the, uh, um, Udai is incredible. That's like, yeah, those, those three, and they're not always on. I don't think they're on right now. I was looking at the menu this morning, but, uh, uh, it, when they're on, I think the mentaiko is there right now. Uh, that's just pretty hard to beat, uh, in terms of Portland comfort food. And also those dumplings, whether you're talking about the chive, pork and chive dumpling or the kimchi dumpling, the, the shrimp dumpling, I don't think it's on the menu anymore. Uh, well, welcome back to the Han Oak podcast. Uh, we'll yep. be talking about Han Oak for the next 60 minutes. And Castagna. We're <laughs> split between Han Oak and Castagna. <laughs> well, I have a question for you, and it's something I'm always concerned with, and I think in your shoes um, it's, a, it's an interesting query. And that is, is Portland all about the new? Everybody's, there's so much new happening all the time that everybody's talking about what's new. And there are all these great places out there that, you know, if, if all these new places weren't here, I think they're great places to eat. But that's the, true of every city, Chris. Whether you're talking about New York, whether you're talking about Los Angeles, whether you're talking about San Francisco, whether you're talking about Seattle. I agree. The but, but the size of city that Portland is, which is not the number one, two, three, four, five city where you're just naturally going to have a lot of, great new food things uh, at somewhere around number 23, 24. We're always talking about the new. And um, and I sometimes feel that some of the, the places that have stood the test of time get a little short shrift because of that. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's sort of true. I mean, I think that we live in a little bit of a bubble, right? Because we're in the media. And, you know, if you're, as you know, if you're writing news, if you're writing for a newspaper or, or Eater PDX or, or somewhere else, you know, what are you going to write about? Are you going to write about something that's existed and hasn't changed? Or are you going to write about the thing that opened on someone's corner that everyone's super excited about? I mean, that's just the nature of news is to write about the new. Right. Um, but I also think we live in a bubble. Like we think about the new a lot more than your everyday person is. And if I didn't work in this field that I work in, I'd probably be a regular. I mean, frankly, I live pretty close to Coquine, so I'd probably be a regular there. <laughs> I might eat there more actually, but it's hard to be a regular in this line of work because you, you do have to check out what's new and find out what's oh, going on. You have on. to. You're forced to. And Gary does it because he's curious, right? You don't have to. Yeah, Frank Bruni. Sorry, did, did I step on Gary there? I'm no, sorry, Gary. Sorry, he'll come. I, I was just going to say, Frank. when Frank Bruni stopped being the New York Times critic, a few years later he wrote a column for the New York Times about 
how much he loved being a regular at restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, being able to go in and they know who he is and what he likes. And, you know, that he likes his tea, serve this temperature or whatever. Uh, I thought that was really nice and telling. And it, there's some, there's something special about becoming a regular somewhere. Gary, maybe, maybe you get I, the best I, of I both worlds. Regular. I'm a regular yeah. Manresa. I'm a regular Qua. I'm a regular Italian Crent. I'm a regular Han Oak. I'm a regular Avia. I'm a regular Castagna. I'm a regular La Pigeon. So, I mean, like, you know, so I, I can, I understand where that comes from. And it is nice. I have my own, I have my seat at La Pigeon. I have my seat at Notre Girl, my specific seat. In fact, my name is on my seat at Notre Girl. Um, well, my dad's name is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I sit wherever I want to, I, I sit away. I don't even sit in the dining room at Castagna. I, I sit where I sit, tables three, four. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's great. It's amazing. I love being a regular. It's, yeah, you know, Gary gets, uh, Gary, uh, gets a uh, table at Castagna. He gets a seat with a little extra leg room. There's <laughs> <laughs> the a $20, Support. uh, well, yeah. actually it's a six top. Uh, it's I'm making a six top. You make it a six top. But that's, you know, not everybody can, can do that. I mean, you, both of you are a little unusual. In but you that could regard. do it at your neighborhood place. I Absolutely. Mean, you, you might, Castagna might not be, but Cafe Castagna might be your neighborhood place, or right. it could be something even more relaxed like a pizzeria or something. I used to go, to, and it was a drive for me, but I was a regular at Navarre before I had discovered back in 2007 when I was first actually found out that there was a food scene in Portland. That's a good place to be a regular at. So I was, uh, and then all of a sudden, the <laughs> next time I went back there four years later, I saw Pam and so she said, where have you been? I said, oh, I discovered there's this whole world out here I didn't <laughs> know about when I was coming here all the time. Um, but yeah, it's... it's uh, that familiarity is amazing. It just feels so comfortable. You feel like you're, you're like in your second house and your second home. You feel like, you know, you're part of the family. And nowadays you're seeing more and more databases. So like we were in, went into Superbyte um, a few weeks ago and they know everything about what we've had before. And, um, and I was really shocked that they, and I don't know if that's, that was a chef's table thing, a super bite thing, but I was shocked about, you know, they knew who I was. I didn't know anybody specifically when I went in, but because I'd made a reservation, it was all set. So I think those opportunities are going to probably be uh, enhanced a little bit. Of course, you it was interesting because up until last year, you couldn't necessarily be a regular that everybody knew who you were. For Gary, uh, he doesn't need that system. I mean, he everybody knows who he is. But for a lot of people, they can be quasi-regulars. If it's, they stop it's, a nice, it's a nice little service touch. I think uh, Kochka does a good job with that. Uh, Coquine, obviously. But, you know, they'll, they'll keep folders on you. They'll keep a file. Yeah. And that yeah, offer- um, at this place called Ennaka in Los Angeles, Nikki Nakayama's place, they actually keep a folder on every single guest to the point where apparently the, the, the guest who returns never gets the same dish twice, except for this one dish. My friend's gone like six times. There's one particular dish that appears mostly on every single menu. But other than that, everything is, changes from visit to visit, except for basically one dish. Was so there- it, can, it can go that far uh- to that extreme. Both of you, was there any specific um, dish or restaurant that kind of blew you away that came out of left field that you didn't know was going to be so great? Well, that's easy. I think Michael's answer and my answer is the same. No, I'll mix it up. I'll mix it up. You know, you know what I'm going to say, right, Michael? I do, but let me mix it up. Uh, I'm going to say that a place that really surprised me, um, and maybe it shouldn't have, was uh, Guero, the sandwich shop. Mm. Now, I love their cart. And I wrote about them when they first opened. I mean, we do like a cart roundup every year. And, you know, they had just, 
they did a really good job with the, their tortas. They did, uh, uh, there's something about the way they griddle the bread. It just all kind of has this nice crunch. Uh, uh, texturally, it comes together. But it's really hard to go from cart to brick and mortar, um, to use the shorthand, to go from uh, uh, running a food cart to running a full restaurant. Some people like Rick Gencarelli who, um, you know, have this background in the restaurant industry and have opened restaurants all around the world, actually. It's easy for them. I think Rick ran a food cart to get his name out there and he knew exactly what he wanted with Lardo um, and Grasa eventually as well. Other carts, you know, maybe they uh, have a hit dish or whatever and they think it'll be easy to just make that transition and then they do and something goes wrong you know the food doesn't translate to a more formal service experience or or they uh, don't know how to provide a more formal they service don't experience. they don't know how to scale up the uh, uh size of dishes or scale them down or how to ma- build the menu out beyond six dishes it's like there's a million different ways it can go wrong and it, i would say it goes wrong more often than not so when these young kids uh alec and megan are their names when they took over the tabla space um after tabla was probably a few years past its prime um they built out this really beautiful restaurant they took their cart menu they added four or five things that are delicious and awesome they added a full bar which you know it's simple and really good um the design of the space is beautiful it's filled with beautiful plants and uh it's not easy to do that. And I just think I have total respect for them for being able to make that jump and create a really satisfying restaurant that, you know, it's a sandwich shop, but it's one of my favorite new places of the year. Same with me. So thanks for reminding me. What about you, Gary? Sorry, man. So what's my answer? You were going to say Han Oak. No. Why is that surprising? I've been there since. (laughs) Yeah, that's not surprising this year. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, because we're on the Han Oak uh, podcast. I thought that's what you were going to talk about. I thought you would know. Chin's Kitchen. Inside oh, in the uh, Hollywood choice. District, Wendy and Cindy Lee. Big surprise. They came literally out of nowhere. Uh, it was a moribund restaurant, and um, Wendy and Cindy took this this dead space and created one of the best Chinese restaurants in town. Maybe the best. Right. Maybe the uh, best. And so, Not my favorite, though. And Duck House has gotten a lot of attention I like Duck House. This I prefer Duck too. House over Chin's Kitchen. Oh, you do? Okay. I do, yeah. I, think, I love Duck House. I think that... Duck House has a few dishes. I think I like Duck House, some of their dumplings a little bit more, but I think overall as a restaurant to bring this a type of cuisine that just does not exist in Portland um, and to do it really, really well, I, I kind of give the nod to Chin's Kitchen. I'm still a huge fan of Taste of Sichuan, but that's out in Beaverton. Yeah, that's also, I love that. But Dung, is Dungbei, 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 is that the name of the type of Chinese cuisine? Right, right, right. So that, that literally means East-North. Um, and it's, it, 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 it to, or if we were to translate it into English, Northeast, so it's Northeastern cuisine. It's like, I, I think in my review, I described it as it's, uh, it's geographically where Maine is if, if China were the U S mm-hmm. but culturally more like Detroit, it's where the auto industry used to be. There's big agriculture there and it's extremely, extremely cold. So the food is really designed to keep you warm through winters that dip down to negative 40 and stay there. I was like researching the town where Wendy and Cindy are from, uh, Harbin, and apparently they have this like outdoor ice village that's like many football fields wide. It's filled with ice castles that are 30 feet tall, and they build these beautiful ice sculptures, and then they can just leave them outside because it doesn't go above freezing for three or four months. Um, so that's your reason to visit Harbin, I guess. 
I've never even heard of it. It's it's incredible how provincial we are. I guess I can only speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for you. And or China's anybody else. huge, you know. Yeah, but and yeah. like like Dongbei cuisine isn't even like in the top ten of like Chinese, Chinese cuisines. Yeah, <laughs> but so you, you think to, if you go to Los Angeles, you go in the San Gabriel Valley. There, there. Well, I don't know about many, but that's oh, where like you'll eight find or nine that. or something. I was looking up there in Flushing are the two places in the U.S. Although I was up in Seattle and I happened to walk into a a, a northeastern Chinese restaurant just super randomly. It was called Dumpling Generation. It's up north of in the north part of Seattle, Northgate, I guess. Oh, yeah, so there you go. So that that keys me because Gary mentioned this to me that he has said that Seattle is uh, is doing a lot of great things and and maybe uh was a more interesting dining city than portland at least in this there. last year i i, I re-ranked i combined portland and seattle lists <laughs> and of my top 15 restaurants among portland and seattle um seven of them seven of them are from seattle eight are from portland so and i've only scratched the surface of seattle restaurants right yeah. so if you had the opportunity I think if you indexed it and you had the opportunity to eat there as much as you eat here, probably that number would change, don't you think? You- well, yeah, it's, it's hard for Castagna and Notre Girl to, or Coquine or La Pigeon or Longbond to be knocked off a, a top, you know, whatever, 15 list. But um, the rest, I mean, who knows? Uh, June Baby, who knew I love Chitlins that much? Chitlins <laughs> at June Baby, my second, maybe my honorable mention dish of the year. Yeah. It's, for, it's like seven bucks. And though the smell is kind of, the smell of, chit- of the chitlins is really off-putting, but once you start eating it and putting some the hot sauce, three different types of hot sauces, you pick which one you want, you combine the three. It's just simply addictive. I couldn't stop eating it. June Baby is a restaurant that, you know, it, I really wish were in Portland. Uh, Eduardo is a really talented chef, and he's doing this personal cooking that... Uh, the chitlins are really amazing. I was, I, we ordered uh, one for the table and then none of my friends would eat it. So I ended up getting to eat the whole bowl myself, uh, when we were there. But yeah, that's, that's a tremendously great new restaurant, um, and worth a trip to Seattle. Do you find that you need to, in order to be a great reviewer in Portland, you have to spend time in Seattle to compare the two? I think it's useful to travel. I mean, even Philly, like this trip to Philly, I, I was there for a wedding. We were there for 36 hours, so it wasn't like I could do a ton. But, you know, I went to Hardina's, the sort of famous steam table Indonesian restaurant uh, that was so, so good. Family-run place. They're 16 years old. Um, and uh, just great, um, you know, beef rendang and gado gado and all this, like, curried fish. Um, and so cheap. <laughs> that was amazing. And then to go to Zahav and really do it up, um, do the chef's tasting there. Um was I, I think it's really important to do that just to have the perspective because I don't know like I it, when when like for example when Tusk opened everyone in Portland writes oh here a Tusk is opening the chef worked at Zahav at this famous Israeli restaurant maybe you provide a little context about what that means but I had never been there when I wrote that so I didn't really know what like you know where Sam was coming from and uh, you know uh, what his background was I should say and to have get to eat there at the source and sort of see not just where it's coming from, but where Sam is deviating from Zahav and where he, where he's riffing and doing his own thing. Um, especially with the like sort of like super seasonality of the food, which I think goes beyond Zahav. Um, you know, that's really fascinating. I, I think it's super, super useful to do that. And I think one of the advantages to being able to hear from Gary and tap into his knowledge is he does. I mean, one of the first things 
I learned about Gary is that, you know, he'll fly to another city to do eight meals in two days, eight dinners in two days. He does or something the homework. like that. Right. So his Portland perspective is not, and we've had this discussion a few times on the podcast. We had it via text probably yesterday or this morning. Uh, his Portland perspective is uh, unlike most people. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who travel and eat. But the majority of people who are probably listening to this and go to a lot of restaurants in Portland have some knowledge of great restaurants elsewhere, but not the not the breadth of knowledge that that you and Gary might have and a few others. Um, so, Gary, in that context, you tell us what you think 2017 was like in Portland. For me, the one word, and you know, Maddie asked me to partake in the year-end review. Uh, of Eater PDX, Maddie John Bamman, Bamman, and um, I use my word that I use, and is unfortunately uninspired. That's my word. It's just one one of those years where I just didn't feel invigorated or energized by the Portland dining scene. The people doing really hard work here. I understand that. I get that, but it just wasn't a very good year. And that's compared to, say, Oakland that you Oh, that's, mentioned. So that's compared to like three years ago. Okay, like, so year you know, to year. Three years ago in Portland. Um, What's the best year in Portland years. dining that you can remember off the top of your head? Pardon? What is the best year in Portland dining that you can remember? Oh, off God, Michael and I talked about this before. I think I it's got to be... Uh, was that Roe? Was the year Roe opened up? It was Roe? I can't... It's hard. See, again, once, if, I, if I could research it, I could have figured out, oh, it was this... This year, whatever that year was, it was 2011. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's also the sort of run in the mid, like just oh, after well, the mid 2000s. I mean, yeah, when, when um, uh, Le Pigeon, Beast, Country Beast, Cat, and Pock Pock, they all opened at the same time. Well, the I mean, Pock Pock was. It depends when you say they opened because they, they were a cart before the others. I mean, they had that little chicken window before. Uh, you know, I think a year before the others opened. A Toro Bravo was 05. So there was a really strong run there. I mean, you talk about Pock Pock, Toro Bravo, Beast, Le Pigeon. You're talking about four, the four most famous restaurants in Portland, probably. Maybe you throw Ox in there. And they still are, yeah. Yeah. Well, so. well then there was a time when Wildwood, Paley's, and Higgins all opened up. No, no, Higgins was earlier. Higgins was, yeah, it was earlier. They were all pretty was, close, though. 1995, yeah. So Paley, 94 it, it, was Paley. It doesn't fit neatly into a year. It's more like a, yeah. a, a, you know, a year and a half, a, little, a tiny era. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Gary's right. 11, 12, there was a lot of excitement. Row, Ox, Little Bird, St. Jack, Aviary. That's a Where, pretty good run. So we have, so 2016, 2017, maybe looking forward to 2018. Not in that league. Oh, God, no. Close. <laughs> well, how do well, Gary? <laughs> when you're laughing at that, how do you feel that someone might feel who just don't, like your friend I'm sorry. Peter? I, what, what do you want me to say? You want okay? Portland has the best French foods in Paris. Since you know, has better French food than Paris. Portland has better French, uh, Japanese food than Tokyo. Does that make everyone feel better? Okay. I'm not trying to make people feel better. I'm just you know. Well, what you, do you want me to you tell gotta, you? I'm just I, I don't I don't know. I'm I'm only referencing your your laughings that it was so that. To th that this era is so far below others that you were laughing. Well, let's hold on a second. Let's let's switch the question around. Who here? Who? What restaurant that's opened in the past year is trying to be at the level of some of the places we've mentioned in the past few minutes? You know what? Who's trying to be the next 
Le Pigeon? Who's trying to be the next Coquine even? Like, where's the... I mean, I'm I'm just wondering. I feel like to if I can pick a word, I haven't filled out Maddie's survey yet, but uh, it, I I might pick safe as my word for this year. And I, I I think that it's not really the fault of the the people opening the restaurants. I think that there's a, a bigger trend at play right now. Is we have a lot of decisions about what restaurants are being opened are being made by developers uh, because we have a lot of restaurant spaces going online. You know, you look at the East Burnside Bridgehead. There, there's a lot of square footage in there that's going to be filled with food. Uh, you look at the buildings going up on Williams or, or, you know, Division has been established, but there's still buildings popping up there. And, you know, when you're looking to fill, I might have said this last podcast, but when you're looking to fill your restaurant space as a developer, you kind of go down a list of usual suspects. You know, you call Naomi Pomeroy, you call Gabriel Rucker, you call John Gorham, you call Andy Ricker. You call, now you call Josh McFadden. Maybe now you try Katie Millard. You know, you go down this list of people and, you know, when you strike out, then you're down, oh, maybe we can get a little big burger in there. Maybe we can get, you know, a local chain essentially. And I think that that breeds people. I think right now we're in a, we're in a scenario where the majority of restaurant spaces that opened get offered first to a list of 10 or 15 or 25 names. So there's just not a lot of new ideas flowing into the restaurant scene the way there used to be. And for something fresh and new, there's too much capital involved, too much, you know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because it costs a lot of money to open a restaurant these days. Yeah. How, much did, how much did it cost Gabriel Rucker to open Le Pigeon? How much did it cost anybody to open Pock Pock? Versus now, if you're going to have to fill an 85, 120-seat restaurant, do two turns, 200, 300 people a night, you're not going to make food that is, that people that that's super expensive because they're not going to come in and pay that money. They're going to you have to go MOR middle of the road, and <laughs> or you I, need I to open a hotel that. where you can rely on the tourist trade as well more so than you can somewhere that's not in a hotel. Yeah, and that's a big trend too. I mean, we new restaurants. We keep seeing new restaurants opening these downtown hotels, and we keep seeing new hotels opening up. Like okay, if you look at the two, like I haven't really look this up, but I think the two most interesting restaurants to open in the past couple of years are probably Hanok and Coquine. Would yep. you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I don't think anybody would argue with that. Okay, so look at Coquine. Coquine opened in a this cafe that's like, by Portland standards, it's pretty far out there. It's at 69th and Belmont. And there had been an existing cafe there called the Songbird, which was a incredibly cute space at the ground floor of this like two, three story building up on the side of Mount Tabor. The food was terrible. I think the owners were fighting or having a divorce or something like that. I don't know the whole backstory, but, uh, uh, you know, it was a gorgeous space with really bad food and you've got, uh, Sondek and Katie from Coquine live 10, 15 blocks away. They're walking around with their baby probably and checking this place out. And they're looking to open a restaurant of their own. It comes online and it's, it's essentially like, I guess you call it a turnkey uh, in that it had already been built out as a restaurant. I'm sure they did a ton of work on it, uh, knowing them. Uh, definitely they changed the sort of look of the dining room and they built out a prep kitchen in the basement. So they did, they did some stuff, but that is like by grand restaurant standards, by, by downtown Portland spending $2 million to open Italian restaurant standards like that. It was very, very uh, on a tight budget. Then you look at Hanok. 
here we have a situation where the chef, his wife and their two sons literally live in the restaurant. You know, you can knock on their door and say hello and they might be back there. You know, it might be bedtime. So don't actually do that. But they, they like that's how they were able to open that restaurant is by literally living there. Um, and uh, so we have chefs, uh, restaurateurs, the most interesting things that are going on. They're finding unique ways to build the restaurant sort of that they want to build in unique places. And probably they're not 100% clear on exactly where they want that restaurant to go, but they get it open and then and and tweak it from there. Because well, co- cooking's a risk. I mean, yeah. 69th, that's pretty far out there. I mean, how many how many Portland restaurants survive doing sort of elevated food outside of, you know, the tiny core that's like, you know, Killingsworth and South, 39th and West, Powell and North, that little box, you know? Uh, that's like 40 blocks of East Portland. Like it's really hard. I think you, you can look to the country cat, which did has done really, really well for themselves in Montevilla. You can look at firehouse restaurant in Northeast Portland. And you know, the list doesn't go a lot farther than that. So for them to open way out there on a street that you're not really driving on, unless you're going home essentially or going there, it's a total destination. And that that's a risk. They took that risk and they've been, you know, they've been really, really successful with it. Right. And the good news is, I know how much each costs to build out, and it's not, it's not a, right, it's not a $2 million Italian restaurant in the warehouse district. I mean, it, they, they, they took a risk, but they were able to, the build-out was reasonable to the point where they could do what they want. I mean, with, with Peter and Son, it was, it's their restaurant. They don't have to answer to anybody. With, with Katie and Sondek, I would imagine, I don't know, but I'm sure they have carte blanche for their investors, and most of the investors I would imagine are kind of smaller. And that, but it's Katie and Sondak's restaurant; they can do what they want. They don't have the pressure from people breathing down their necks, like like a lot of these other big restaurant groups who from other, you know from around town. So there's that freedom to do an exper- experiment and to do interesting things if they if they so choose. Um, yeah, I think we can agree that that's that's. Years ago, when I talked to Ethan Stoll up in Seattle, when I first met him, he was very jealous about Portland because they couldn't, you, you couldn't be a creative sort and take a risk in Seattle. It was much like Portland is today. I think we've gotten to that point. However, closer. we don't have Microsoft and Amazon here to support all of that. So it's a little bit of, it's a different equation. Um, but, in, in, but in Seattle, I, just, I was just literally in Seattle, and some of the more, some of the most, Creative restaurants in the Pacific Northwest are are in Seattle, like Eden Hill, which is run by and owned by a 29 year old chef named Maximilian Petty. Yes, stateside with Eric Johnson, he used to work for John George, who helped open John George's restaurant in the Far East. Even even Ed's first restaurant, Solare, the CDC there is Calvin Joaquin, who's 22 years old. Yes, 22 years old, and yeah, so you see, you 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 have some, you know, even in a big city like Seattle. You you have the creativity there. I, I mean, I, I understand what Ethan has a million restaurants there, and all the all the restaurants I just named they're single proprietor. They, they just the owners either own one or two restaurants at most. So there are, you can be creative also in Seattle, and it, it, like you said, it also helps that there's money there, like with the Amazon and Microsoft people who who are willing to go out and eat and have and expense like, accounts. That's that's yeah. the key to that, where people don't care about what they're ordering. They'll just order. So speaking of creativity, I think we can't do a recap of 2017 
without addressing pop-ups and their importance in Portland and how important they were in 2017 and what they mean for the future of Portland dining? Do you think uh, we're going to see some pop-ups move into brick and mortars? And uh, someone like Maya is a very good example. She opened a pop-up and now Maya Lovelace is opening May in 2018. If it's called May. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't... TBD. But uh, I think that's the one that we know is going to open, and I think that she is very well situated for success. I mean, the the front back uh, style that I think locally Roe really pushed uh, and sort of brought brought to people's attention, where you have a casual place up front and that that maybe pays the bills, and then a fine dining place in the back. Finer dining too. Yeah, and Earl Earl told me that Roe was an inspiration for Longbon. So, I mean, that that's the route, I think, is Roe, although I think Roe eventually was doing better than whatever was in the front, and uh, obviously you've seen it spin off on its own now downtown. But, uh, you know, I think Maya's really prepped for success because I think that the kind of cooking she does where you're taking sort of really delicious uh, Southern food and adding in these Portland uh, sort of seasonal, you know, farm elements. It's really smart. Um, I like splitting it in two. I'm glad she's not doing away with her fixed price meals because those are really fun. Uh, And people are just going to be buying fried chicken from her by the, by the bucket full, you know? And uh, one of the, one of the new restaurants, I, I hope he can open it in 2018 is Carla Lomagna's, Magna, wherever he decides to open that restaurant, I'm curious to see uh, what his Filipino vision is like. One of the most exciting restaurants in the United States right now is Tom Cunanan's Bad Saint in Washington, D.C., or Lhasa in Los Angeles. Um, so we, we have this, this, I mean, people have been talking about the Filipino trend. I mean, it's kind of relatively still in its infancy. But I, I really want to see, you know, Carlo do his thing without any, you know, inhibitions or constraints. And he's excited about it. We started talking about that a few years ago when he was at Clyde Common, and I know he was more excited about Filipino food than anything that he'd been doing there. Shout out to Northeast Portland, really bringing it. Um, also, uh, Gary Gary and I had the opportunity to, well, I'm sure he's done it more than me, but I, Gary and I went to uh, Vince, uh, uh, Vince Wynn's <laughs> pop-up. Yeah. Uh, Jolie Led. Yeah, Jolie Laid, and that's a that's a really interesting uh, concept. Um, it was my first time there, so I, I can't speak to what it's like all the time. But I got the sense the basic idea was taking ingredients that aren't crazy elevated. We're not doing a white truffle dinner or anything like that, but then sort of using high, you know, sort of contemporary techniques to present them in unusual, novel ways. His his food is really, really beautiful. Um, some of the prettiest dishes I think I ate in 2017 were there. And so he could be a candidate for doing something interesting. Um, maybe not a full giant restaurant, but maybe something in the back of something else. Or I don't know. I have no information about this. I'm just. And what about, talking. I haven't been there yet since. And I, I've been there. I mean, I was at his first pop-up. I've been there 10 times. It's my seventh or sixth. Favorite. It depends where Roe is. Cause I, I've mentioned that in the past that Vince had climbed all the way to number six on my Portland list. Strictly Portland list, and now it's either six or seven, depending on where you put Roe is. But, but yeah, Vince is doing spectacular work, or very well for spectacular for Portland work at um, Jolie Led, and you know who knows what he's going to do in the future. I'm hopeful that that you know he can continue on and be open more nights than just Monday nights inside Longbon. 
But we'll see what happens. So I'll 2018 ask you, for Vince. I'll ask you both because one of the pop-ups that turned into a pretty successful restaurant, or at least one that gets a lot of talk, Nomad. Uh, yeah, that's important. a very similar situation where you have a a uh, a, a sort of sort of pop up uh, that was at the uh, at Shift Drinks that transformed into a sort of split restaurant where there's a bar side and a and a tasting menu. I was thinking about uh, <laughs> my dad sent me sent me a link to this story about a, a guy who invented a fake restaurant and got it up to number one on TripAdvisor for London. Did you guys see this? No, Uh how did that work? So he lived in a shed because London rents are so crazy. So he named his restaurant The Shed and he got it put on TripAdvisor and then he got his friends to write all these like fake glowing reviews. And like one day he starts getting calls to this burner phone that he had. People asking for reservations. He always said, we're fully booked, we're fully booked. And then after several months, it shot up to number one. It was the number one restaurant in London, according to TripAdvisor. <laughs> and after that happened, he decided, okay, now I actually have to throw a dinner. So he went to the store and he bought a bunch of like ready to eat, like hungry man dinners <laughs> and had his chef friend like plate them differently on plates and like served it all in his yard. Um, and, you know, some people were like really visibly, you know, horrified yeah. by the situation. But then others were like, Okay, so can we come back? Like, how do, would this make it easier to get reservations? I know it's really hard. <laughs> I love that because I think that our world, social media, that things self perpetuate. You start, I find myself judging restaurants that I've never been to based on what I see other people saying. I think if you don't like follow the restaurant scene closely, you listen to this conversation we're having, you might just assume we're just making up half the names of these we, places. We could be. <laughs> we could so be. So don't, don't, don't go to the shed in London, it's not real. No, but there are a lot of places to go to here. Is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to most in 2018 or a trend? I'm curious as to whether sexual harassment is going to become come out in the forefront in Portland, and we're going to start hearing more it's about that. It's already started. Lovecraft owners been like, oh, he got well, he left Lovecraft because of sexual yeah. harassment. I mean, I think we're seeing it in the bar industry. We haven't seen a lot of it in the restaurant industry yet. It could be coming. I mean, it's, the the like. It's just a weird thing, like eating at Zahav um, a couple, just a couple nights ago. It was Friday, and uh, the staff was all like very touchy feely with each other and with guests to some extent too, which I think is, you know, it's a no no in some places. But it sort of felt like they were getting into the Israeli vibe, and you know, they're friendly with each other. It wasn't like managers inappropriately touching staff, but it's just I was thinking about how blurred the lines are. I mean, if you've worked in a restaurant, you know that you know, you're in tight quarters with people. Often you have a lot of young people and, you know, maybe you're attracted to each other. And, you know, obviously the things that have come out so far, like Ken Friedman and, uh, at, um, uh, the spotted pig and, um, Mario Batali and et cetera, they're, they go way beyond that. And some of the behavior is really horrifying. Um, but you know, the lines are blurred, uh, in restaurants and it's just, I think, I don't know. I don't want to say it's like a natural thing. I think we have to fight to stop, you know, the restaurant industry has to fight to stop this from happening. But uh, I, I guess TBD. But Gary's right. We are seeing it in the bar industry here. And I don't think Lovecraft will be the last bar to, to, to Love, have force Love, a change of Love, owner, ownership. Well, Lovecraft wasn't the first. Unfortunately, I know of another issue that happened a few years ago, but that no one talked about. still doesn't mm. talk about. Mm. Yeah, I've heard rumors of a few, but it has much like rock and roll. I mean, because with rock and roll... I mean, first of all, that goes way back. Who's someone going to complain to? I'm talking about, you know, 
back. Gene in, Simmons is being sued for sexual harassment, according like I heard that yesterday. Right, but what I mean, my question is, what's going to happen there? The label's going to drop him, and he still has his forty million. How does yeah. how does that yeah. work? So, yeah. But in the restaurant industry, yeah, you've got it's kind of been it's it, chilling. It's, been part it's chilling of it, to right? read this it's, stuff. Yeah, yeah it's going to be. And some of the things that someone may have written off a few years ago as well, that's part of the industry we we're seeing in many other industries there that's was a, no longer being written off. There was a uh, restaurant in, out in Hillsboro called, uh, I think it's called Emilio's, um, Hillsboro or Edge of Beaverton anyway, uh, that was that we reported on it had been hit with a number of sexual harassment um, and uh, claims and there was there were several lawsuits that were were settled uh, without us knowing what the result was. Um, so yeah, I mean you're definitely seeing it. I don't know if there. I mean I don't know if there will be a John Bash here in Portland, um, but there might be. I would wonder that we may have heard about it by now, but you don't know when this is all gonna. Well, I'm I I feel like just being in the business, I might have heard more rumors. I definitely hear rumors about the bar industry, so it seems like there's some bad things happening there. But you know. If anyone wants to talk to me off the record, I'm I'm available. Um, it's M Russell at Oregonian.com, or uh, you know, you can uh, you can find me. I'm on Twitter. So you're going to be a therapist or a lawyer? <laughs> Is that no? no. But we will we will you know we'll report what needs to be reported. Right, or you can gather enough information so you can be a conduit for a number of you know you can start to see. A, hey, hey, and a remember, it was a somebody. restaurant critic in uh, New Orleans who. Brett Anderson. Who got this all started by, by his expose on John Besh. Um, that's sort of the do- first domino to fall, in, in at least in the restaurant world. Hmm. We'll see. I mean, the president of the United States, for example, is a guy who's been accused of a dozen yeah. times of sexual harassment. Yeah, sexual he owns assault. restaurants. He owns yeah, yeah. None that I would ever eat in. Yeah, of course. Um, so anything in particular that you Do you're... you think Trump is a bad tipper? I've wondered Fuck that. Yeah. Yes, I do. Of course I do. <laughs> I would, I'd like to know how bad he's of a tipper he is. He doesn't drink, so his his checks probably aren't that big. But he probably doesn't care about tips, and he probably isn't there when the check comes. <laughs> That's actually a good point. Yeah, right, That's a very man. good point. <laughs> hey, where's Don? Yeah, no, he he skipped out. So, um, last thoughts of 2017. I know I'm that's hoping. a very general question. I, is there anything that you that that Michael you can think of that was Maybe off the beaten path that that excited you, or something that you're looking forward to 2018. Same thing for you, Gary. Gary, you go first. I'm going to think about it. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful for 2018. Um, I always I always want to be hopeful. Chin's Kitchen came out of nowhere. I'm hoping we'll get three or four more of that coming out of nowhere, coming out of left field. So, um, you know, one can always. Hope and dream. Well, so I think I think 2017. One thing we didn't touch on, we had two Spanish food festivals going on in Portland. Which, so I think if I were to define, did anyone go? Yeah, I think they were fairly well attended. I don't know. I don't have numbers, but at least they happened. And uh, and the Spanish tourism board um, sponsored one of them. And then Mr. Gorham. And uh, I think he'll. I think Gorham's will go on again. I think he'll do it next year. I know he wants to do that again. But so I thought. If I, I wouldn't say in a very strong way, but I look at 2017 as the year that Spanish food kind of grabbed some attention in Portland, and maybe Chinese in 2018. Yeah, I mean Chinese food. You could argue 2017 was a big year for it. I mean, 
You had Donway Cunting, uh, Chin's Kitchen, XLB, all right, Duck House. Um, I don't know if Duck House maybe opened in 2016, but it, I think yep. it was the end. So, uh, that those that's three or four very exciting restaurants. Um, what else? I I thought sandwiches were a big deal this year. Um, you know the Baker's Mark, Stacked, uh, Filia, and uh, Guero all opened within a few months of each other. Um, I think that was my favorite bite was the Guero hamburguesa. Oh my god! Yeah, I think that was my that was the thing that I sat there and thought, um, other people need to try this. So, to, okay, if I can answer your question about 2018, uh, I would just say that, you know, for the people who are uh, the people who are making the decisions about what restaurants open in the city, if they happen to be listening to this podcast, you know, maybe be a little more adventurous, take some more risks. Um, I think you see a place like Chin's Kitchen, which opened in a 70 year old uh, space, as Gary put it, it was moribund or, you know, it just was a pretty, pretty run of the mill American Chinese restaurant um, for most of its run. You see, you take a chance on these two ladies. One of them was making dumplings out uh, 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 in uh, the Jade District for a while. The other one was in international business. You take a chance on them running, opening their first restaurant and it becomes a major hit and you get you know, not not that everything should be about press, but like I wrote a big thing on them. Well, then we put them in their restaurant of the year. Uh, Portland Mercury wrote a big thing. So like you you know they and they've become successful. I think like if you take a chance on something that's a little out of left field, it can win, and it's better for the food scene as a well. whole. I'd actually point to the uh, um, to all right. I'm not a hundred percent all in on this, but I think the the Goat Blocks uh, development. I think they did a pretty good job. Um, I think bringing kachka over for a uh, a sort of a bigger better kachka um i don't know if roseline's ever going to open their cafe but roseline was meant to open their first cafe there um a really big nice market of choice like i think that they i don't think they like took crazy risks but i think they thought a little bit out of left field um i don't think a lot of people would have thought oh yeah another kachka just like eight blocks away from the original like that's a big idea for hit but i think it will be so Oh yeah, that's a, okay. And Kachka 2.0, that's going to be a lot of fun for 2018. When does a that actually two, A lot of 2.0s. A lot of like yeah. May 2.0, Dougie 2.0. Um, oh, hey, you guys, uh, Woodsman Tavern, a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just talked about it on my uh, restaurant spot. I just oh, went yeah, like sorry. Week, which is next ago. which is next Monday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what you know, I I love the fact I love feast. I mean, I, I like feast. I got involved in feast this year, so it was it, it's fun to see chefs from around the country and with Olvera coming around the world, and you know, and then Daniel Patterson came for a pop up at Coquine. It's it's nice to get chefs, well known chefs from outside of the city to come. I mean, Daniel Patterson is world famous. Uh, Olvera is world famous, and it'd be nice to see that. More, we're not going to be Los Angeles because Will Gadara and Daniel Hume are opening up a restaurant in L.A. So is David Chang. So is you know. So is, so is Jessica Largi from Manresa. Who so you have all these top flight chefs going to Los Angeles opening up restaurants. We're not going to get that in Portland, but it'd be nice to get you know chefs, well-known chefs from around the country, from around the world, to come to Portland to cook, even if it's a one-off dinner. I so think we'll I see more see of that. that. I think. We're fairly, Portland is fairly well known as a nice food destination now. So, um, listen, we got to we gotta uh, put an end to this, and I'm sorry. I think we can go on for a long time. However, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and it was of interest to you, next week you want to tune in for Kurt Huffman and Maddie John Bam and looking forward to 2018. That's a little bit of an extension of this podcast with two different 
uh, gentlemen, and we sincerely appreciate Michael Russell, you taking your time to come in today. Gary, always appreciate your taking the time with us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. Thanks, Court. Happy holidays, everybody. Thanks, Court. All Happy right. holidays, people. Thank you. Well, Bye, I'll guys. See you, Happy uh, New we'll Year. See you next year. Okay. Later. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupans, unsurpassed quality. From the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years, Zupans Markets. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right